everybody. Welcome to this episode. I'm with my good friend Megan here again, and we decided that it's time for y'all to go a little bit behind the scenes and get to know the guy who hosts this podcast a little bit more. So welcome, Megan. Megan's in Alaska. Usually she's in Jacksonville, Florida. So now she's left me and she's on the opposite side of the world. <laughs> yes, I'm in Fairbanks, Alaska right now. So the first question is, Austin, what's the worst thing you've done to get rid of a guest? All right, Megan. I actually interviewed this guy too. So he had a PR person and this PR person I thought was a little bit beyond annoying. And I just got tired of all the emails I started getting from him. But if you're wondering, the worst thing that I've done in order not to air this episode is I actually uh, faked my own death. <laughs> what? I've never done this before, but this is how annoying this guy was that I decided to fake my own death. Can you please tell me how you manage this? Well, I figured if the guy kept listening to the podcast now, then he would probably realize I haven't died. But this is, <laughs> just, let's see, this was in April 2018-ish or so. I know because I brought up this uh, email and yeah, his PR guy would just nail me like every three days. When the episode's going live, when the episode going live, I'm like, dude, the episode wasn't even good anyways. And the guy just wanted to come on and promote his book the whole time, which I had enough of. Like, I was like, okay, I, I could I have a feeling this wasn't going to be a great interview halfway through. But now I'm like, this guy's annoying the shit out of me. There's no way I'm publishing this. I'm going to estimate because I don't, if I scroll down, it might take two minutes to scroll down on all the replies of the emails that he just kept forwarding to me asking when it go live. He sent me at least 10 to 12 emails after we did the real interview and when it was going to go live. So what I did is I actually pretended that I had an assistant and got on my email account. And this is the email I wrote. Brian, this is Kathy dot 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 Austin's assistant. It's with a heavy heart. I regret to inform you that Austin passed away last week. I'm not sure if you had your podcast lined up to go live next week, but I'm sorry, this has been a lot to handle and I'm going to have to go through all his emails today. So with a heavy heart, Kathy. Oh my goodness, Austin, that is awful. I know. <laughs> Did he ever reply to Kathy's email? Yeah, he said, I'm terribly sorry to hear. And then he put a sad face. <laughs> I didn't remember this sad face till I saw this right here. Hey, <laughs> is it like is it like an emoji sad face or it's like No, a it's a colon. colon it's a colon for Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, he didn't even use an like, emoji. <laughs> like a nineties sad face. Yeah, this was early twenty eighteen, so I don't even know if they had emojis back then. But yeah, then they, they put, did. I'm I'm joking around. <laughs> but then he put passing along our condolences and then I finally have never heard it from this guy again. Thank goodness. <laughs> wow. Uh, I'm scared to do it again. You should send him a link to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you dare me to? I dare you. That's the easiest way to get me to do something, by the way. You just You won't do it. I dare you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think I'm gonna do it now. Okay. Uh, well, hopefully that gave y'all a little bit more insight and I haven't used that again because I'm a little scared to because I feel like if I keep pulling that trigger, well, it's eventually going to happen, but yeah. um, that, I feel like that's the worst thing I've done to not air an interview. So there you go. Yeah, that's pretty terrible. I agree. All right, cool. So I'll end that one there. Whew. All right. Okay. So, so what do you think about that? I, how, how did I not know that you did that? I mean, only like <laughs> I brought it up once, like after I did it at my parents' house, they had a family over there. I just thought it was too funny. I had to say it. They're like, you did not. I'm like, here's the email. <laughs> like, y'all read it. Yeah. They're like, that's really fucked up. Austin. <laughs> <I know. laughs> if you want to make it authentic, 
you should have like had somebody send it from their own email. You should make a Kathy email. I know, but then I'd have to, it takes like a couple hours to set that all up, you know? That's true. On that's my own true. domain. Cause I really did think about that, but that's the reason I'm like, uh, I'm not gonna spend a couple more hours. This guy's already kept wasting my time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not that invested in this lie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Would you guys like to keep hearing more episodes of this podcast? See, I started this podcast to help listeners just like you, but I only want to keep doing the podcast if I feel like people are getting value from it. And guess what? The best way for me to feel like you're getting value from it is by becoming a Patreon member. I can promise you I don't do this for the money because I make no money doing it. So if you could help me with that by becoming a Patreon supporter, I truly appreciate it. And that's no lie. I think a lot of times people, as they rise up the food chain, they sort of lose track of sometimes where they came from. And sometimes they feel like they're too good for something. Well, you know what? I don't care. I'll do anything. A lot of people just don't show up and they don't put themselves in the position to win. And that's something that I'm just a big believer in. It's disheartening initially because I would spend this time and this money on this and maybe I would get a few tire kickers and I'd be like, oh, it was a waste. Either out of stupidity or stubbornness, I kept doing it. The best bang for the buck in terms of online marketing today is... It doesn't matter if you're an attorney, a plumber, dentist, anything. If you have your own business and you can sort of support yourself it just makes you feel better at the end of the day because you're not holding to a system which sort of make you a cog in the wheel. And if you're just a cog in the wheel, you could be a great cog, but you're never going to get that boost, that independence that you would have if you have your own business. I am Jonathan Rosenfeld and I am 47 years old. I live in Glencoe, Illinois. And I am the owner and founder of Rosenfeld Injury Lawyers, a full-service personal injury medical malpractice law firm headquartered in Chicago. Most people are probably wondering why I have a lawyer on. So what makes you different than, I guess, another law firm where I just hear about them doing personal injury? Probably the biggest difference is we focus quite a bit on the business development aspect of personal injury. Most people don't realize that personal injury is a whole field of law is a tremendous multi-billion dollar business. Most attorneys, they don't really sit at their desk all day, or at least in our office, we don't sit at our desk all day. We are actually out there trying to develop business, acquire new cases, and we really focus on the acquisition side of things as opposed to the traditional sit at your desk all day, bill out hours, go to court. We focus much more on the entrepreneurial aspect of the business. And what do you mean by that? Because again, I think I have a somewhat of an understanding just knowing your background and whatnot, but I think a lot of people still want to understand exactly what you're talking about. So just making it as simple as possible when you're talking about acquisition and entrepreneurship and being a lawyer. Sure. Well, most attorneys who are not in the field of personal injury sit at their desk and they bill their time out, usually in six minute increments. Personal injury is a little bit different. Most attorneys in the world of personal injury, medical malpractice, they handle cases on a contingency fee basis. And what that means is basically you get paid a percentage of the recovery. So there's a tremendous incentive both to acquire cases and to work the cases up and get the cases resolved for as much money as possible, because ultimately that's how you earn a living. And in the field of personal injury, it's typically 
the best marketers, frankly, get the best cases. And it's very competitive field because most people have caught on to this. It's not a secret. And the marketing aspect of personal injury is really where a lot of energy and money goes, not just a local level, but just really across the country. If you're in Florida, in the South, billboards are tremendous. Every lawyer down there has billboards. In Chicago, it's a little bit different. More lawyers are focused on TV, internet, but the acquisition of cases is extremely important because ultimately the case that you may get today could pay out down the road a year from now, two years from now, whenever, maybe a multi-million dollar case where if you're earning a fee of 30%, 40%, sometimes 50% of that, the money involved is very substantial. So, and ultimately it's sort of a little bit of a numbers game. By the time someone calls you, you don't necessarily know if that's going to be that million dollar payday when you get the call, when you get the intake. So yet there is some numbers involved. You have to have a quantity of new cases coming in. You have to have a quantity of new calls coming in because one out of 10 cases or calls may be a viable case. One out of 50 may be a good case. One out of 100 may be a very good case. And the number of really solid cases you may get a year, you can count on one hand. So at the end of the day, you really have to develop lines of business, lines of getting people calling your office to make those numbers, those quotas, if you will, because ultimately it really is a numbers game in terms of mining for cases, if you will. Yeah. And the great part about having you on, I talk about this all the time on the podcast, it's just doesn't matter any industry. If you're in sales, which basically you are, you're trying to acquire cases, right? It's always a numbers game. So it doesn't matter if you're a lawyer or if you're selling widgets or whatever else. So, but for you specifically, so you don't ever go to court or anything like that. You get the business through marketing. And then you said you refer it to like other law firms and then you will get a percentage if they end up winning that lawsuit. Correct. We actually handle some cases in-house in our office, what we do is we frankly, we cherry pick out the very good cases. Every time you think that there's a case, there's a layup, it ultimately turns out to be a more difficult case than you thought initially. But yes, we refer out quite a bit of business. We have very strong relationships with law firms in Chicago and across the country. And that really enables us to scale our business tremendously without necessarily paying the overhead and the salaries that go along with it. So what we do is we focus on the front end of case acquisition, business development. And what we'll do then is we'll partner with different law firms who may have a specialty in that particular area. So for example, there are some mass tort cases out there today, such as Zantac, such as hernia mesh cases, where there's different law firms around the country who've positioned themselves, not necessarily for the acquisition of these cases, but for the litigation aspect of it. The cases, again, that we sign up today and the cases that we sort of have in the pipeline are typically a long-term prospect. Most of these cases, what happens is they get filed in, and we're talking about a mass torts now, but they get filed in what's called a MDL, which is a multi-district litigation, which is sort of a little bit different than a class action because the cases are actually filed individually and they're actually heard individually, but they're consolidated for purposes of litigation and discovery. So the law firms that we partner with, they have very strong leadership positions with the courts in these cases, and it really enables us to give them the cases that they essentially need and position those cases so they can actually maximize the value of the case. And for people who never have been to law school or anything, 
unlike other professions, it is perfectly legal for lawyers to share fees in a case. And the reasoning behind that is, is that if I am a family attorney, which I am not, but if I practice family law and the attorney that I'm friends with down the street has a case that he wants to refer me, but he doesn't practice family law, he can legally get that case to me and accept a fee because the theory is that I will do a better job working on that case where I have experience and expertise as opposed to someone just trying to take a case just to make a buck. So ultimately it serves the clients very well, theoretically, assuming that people act in good faith and that they don't get attorneys don't get too greedy as sometimes people do. But the theory is that ultimately you will get the best representation possible. So that is what we focus on doing. And so how big is your law firm today? In terms of attorneys, there's three attorneys who work full-time for me. And then we have six or seven attorneys who are of counsel with my office. And what that means is basically we just have an official business relationship. We are not partners. They are not employees, but we have an official relationship. It's a semi-vague term that has been used for a long time in the legal profession. That's what people have been doing. In addition to that, we also have called intake department where we have four people. We have numerous administrative staff, and we also have people who work full-time on the marketing aspect of that. We have people who do writing for websites. We have three, four people who do that full-time. We have a full-time programmer. We have two full-time admin people who just tend to website material. And we also have someone who handles social media. So when I first started doing this, I basically was doing a lot of this stuff myself and I still do quite a bit of it myself. But as you grow, we've really found that having that extra manpower really enables us to scale and you know, tackle larger projects, which you really need to do in our industry today. To stay competitive, you really have to have those, that framework in place to make your business competitive with others. This is now multi, multi-billion dollar business. There are law firms across the country who are everyone sort of going after the same cases. And if you don't have that, it's very difficult to compete. Traditional financial institutions neglect the needs of small business owners. I'm talking about you, freelancers, gigsters, Uber drivers, side hustlers, 1099 employees, any side income. Everyone qualifies under Soul Pro. So are you struggling to find a business checking account that fits your needs as a small business owner? Looking for a checking account that does more than hold your money? Nearside is helping small businesses save money. The Nearside Cashback Program means you automatically get up to 2.2% cash back on all purchases. MasterCard enhanced debit benefits and discounts on business software like Square and QuickBooks. And the Nearside Perks Program gives you free credits and discounts on products you love, like $300 in Yelp ad credits and $200 in Indeed credit. They have two layers of cashback. Universal Cashback, where you get 2.2% on any business purchases made on the card. Plus, they have the Easy Savings Cashback. MasterCard has partnered with tens of thousands of businesses across the U.S., bringing you up to 10% off select purchases. No monthly fees and no overdraft fees. Nearside Business Checking helps you grow your business by saving you money and providing valuable rewards and discounts. With Nearside Rewards, you can earn cash back automatically on all the business purchases you already make. 
and they offer seamless online banking experience for on-the-go entrepreneurs. And you can check it out right now. Go check out the Nearside app in both the Google Play Store and Apple Store. To learn more about Nearside and how they can help your business, go to nearside.com forward slash inspiration and sign up for a Nearside business checking account or click the link in the description below to sign up for your Nearside business checking account. Hey guys, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, then you know my secret weapon to getting more done. And that's Magic Mind, the world's first productivity drink. Well, apparently it's working for our audience too, because the Magic Mind team told me, Austin, we want to sponsor even more episodes of your amazing podcast. Well, thank you, Magic Mind team, for supporting the podcast. But I'm not the only one that will be doing the thanking during this ad read. You know who else will be? Well, that will be you, of course, because you just ordered some Magic Mind. And you're going to be thanking yourself for how much smarter you feel after drinking this magical elixir. If you're looking for an edge over your competition, then this is the drink for you. Magic Mind is a nootropic shot of healthy, natural ingredients that help you decrease stress, boost blood flow, and keep you focused. See, when I first got my hands on Magic Mind, I won't lie, I didn't think it would work at all. Plus, it looked like one of those grassy vegan hippie drinks. But I was able to get over my ego and down the thing anyways. And since then, I haven't looked back. I've been taking Magic Mind on my normal work days, which is only Wednesday, of course. And instead of getting my normal two hours of work done, I feel like I've knocked out 40 hours. Imagine that, being 20 times more productive. Well, that could be you. Once you order your special case of these nootropic shots, all you have to do is go to magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20 to get 20% off your order. Again, that's magicmind.co forward slash millionaire and use code millionaire20 to get 20% off your order. And again, to differentiate yourself versus like law firms that maybe started 20, 30 years ago, do you say that you have a lot more call intake people or marketing people or those people who are writing for websites or have developers, whereas other law firms might not have that. They just practice law versus having as much intake as it seems like that maybe you have. Well, there's different ways to get business. If you've been practicing law for 50 years, or even if you're no longer practicing law, but traditionally the law practice was based on referrals. A lot of people, if you were doing personal injury, you may have had a referral network from other attorneys who were doing different types of law. And still today, that's the case. I mean, those are some of the best cases, frankly, the word of mouth cases. But ultimately, it's still sort of a process and you're still sort of waiting around for those cases and everything else. So what we've done and what a lot of law firms have really started to do is really aggressively market to get these cases. And it does mean having the intake people and it does mean having the writers and everything else. But what we focus quite a bit on in terms of differentiating ourselves is really doing more in-depth content, doing more of it, and really producing it at a scale that is probably more aggressive than the person down the street. So there's no magic formula here. I wish there was. But what does that mean? What does that mean, more in-depth content? I have no idea what that means. What we'll do is if you look around, and it doesn't matter, it could be any industry, but there's a lot of cookie cutter content out there. For example? For example, yeah. If we're talking about car accidents, 
some person may have, some attorney may have one page on car accidents, which is 500 words. Okay. We probably have 150 pages of content and each page is probably, I would guess, 2000 to 5000 words. Now, does it mean you lump up loads of garbage and hope, you know, something sticks when you throw it at the wall? No, this is all done really with the searcher intent. It sounds pretty corny now, but the days of manipulating the internet for search engine results and for loading content with a bunch of spam garbage has come and gone. In the past, what happened was, is if you loaded up your content with spammy words, such as car accident attorney, car accident lawyer, call a car accident lawyer, you need a car accident lawyer. It actually had some effect and it actually was, had an impact in terms of getting traffic to your website and getting business. Google's gotten much, much more sophisticated over the past five, 10 years, but really accelerated it over the past three or four years where that spammy stuff, not only does it not work, but it's actually going to hurt you because they're going to say, Hey, this is just garbage. This is nonsense. This is not what people really are looking for when it comes to seeking out the services of an attorney. So what we do is we actually look at the data where we have several programs that we do use, but even for anyone who's just doing a Google search, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page, it'll typically have for most search results, it'll have people also ask. And those are phrases that people actually are looking for that Google collects that data. And you can look at those people also ask questions and formulate content in response to it to address it. And if that's something that we do with multiple different types of cases and everything else, but that's an example of how we're sort of creating content and how we're sort of differentiating content as opposed to the person who may just have a single page, which is awfully general in nature. We do that. We do a ton of frequently asked questions. We do a lot of statistics. We do video. We do animation. I mean, it goes on and on, but ultimately at the end of the day, the consumer today is a lot more sophisticated and doing a lot more research than the consumer who may have been looking for a lawyer or any kind of professional or really even any product in the past. People seem to be doing multiple searches before they pick up the phone, before they fill out that contact form, before they take action. And what we're really trying to do is we're really trying to provide that content we hear calls all the time from people who said, you know what, I was doing research on nursing homes and I saw your law firm after I was doing one search and then I started doing other searches and your law firm kept popping up and I just felt like I had to call you. And it's sort of flattering, of course, when people call you, but what's really happening is that we're creating content which sort of mimics what they're looking for, and it can have a tremendous impact. So if anyone's out there who has a business and they're trying to develop their online business and really develop their, whether a service or a product, I would really encourage them to take a look at the actual intent of their business and the intent of their consumer and try to create content around that and do it in depth. Increasingly, people just gloss over the 500 word pages. It's just to make yourself stand out, you gotta do more. You have to put more content out there, do it in more depth and really make it better because not only do search engines want that, but consumers want that. Right now we're updating hundreds and hundreds of pages of content on our website that we may have created five plus years ago, 10 years ago, which may have been great then, but today people expect more.
that's just the way of the world today. So you just either grow or you die. Yeah, it seems like it makes sense. I mean, so basically it's through SEO, it sounds like is how you found out and were able to grow your practice versus the old school way of just getting referrals. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we still get referrals from, we still have old clients who call us and email us with. Yeah. But generally speaking, we don't care about referrals. We're talking about you're proactive, right? And doing this and able to do all this SEO. Because if anyone went to your website now, I see what you're talking about. Even under personal injury, you have a page that's dedicated to Uber accidents, right? So that's way more specific than just a car accident, like you said earlier, right? Yeah. And if you go even further, we then have different areas. Most areas we have child pages under there. We have Uber accident, frequently asked questions. So yeah, what we're doing today is we are doing SEO. We also do pay-per-click, which we can get into, but the best bang for the buck in terms of online marketing today is traditional organic SEO. The results at the very top of the page now, Google's made it more difficult to differentiate, but depending on the search and the topic and everything, you may see three, four, five different paid searches, search results at the top of the page. The rest of that is typically organic search results. And it used to be, Google used to make more of a distinction. They used to shade those top paid results blue, and then they took away the shading. And now today it's very difficult to differentiate, but still people seem to put a little bit more trust in the organic results than they do the paid results. So that's what we're focusing on. Yeah. And again, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, if you're a dentist right now, or if you're a long guy, if you just went more in depth, if you don't have a website, just think about different ways that people are trying to find you and what they're searching for. And then the in-depth blog posts you can make to actually generate clients and whatnot. So definitely want to get into how you started thinking about this and how you started growing this practice. But before we do, I was curious, what's your day-to-day -day like now? What are you spending your time doing? Is it managing the practice? Is it talking to some clients? Because you said some call you. Tell us what that's like. Yeah. I wish I had more of a traditional practice, but I don't. My days are typically very fluid. I typically have a number of business development projects, primarily website related projects in terms of developing content, revising content, coming up with ideas for content. That's always sort of ongoing. And we have a planned content management system in place where we're looking at different areas in a systemic way to improve and really grow those different areas. And we use different software for that. One of the softwares that we use is we use a program called Ahrefs. It's been around for a long time, but that program basically enables you to look at the search volume for different terms. It'll actually enable you to see competitor-wise who's doing what, what their content is. It enables you to look at competing pages on your own website. Maybe you have too much of the same, and that enables you to pare down problem areas because if you have six pages on essentially they may have different terms but they're essentially targeting the same thing you're going to have problems typically because google's going to sort of throw their hands up in the air and say oh my gosh we can't differentiate any of this nonsense we're just basically going to push you back to the dungeons of the third fourth fifth page so that's part of my day another part of my day is the overall management of the business for every case that we do an intake on we either are handling the case ourselves, where we are referring the case to another law firm or we are rejecting that case and it sounds fairly you know direct but the truth is that a lot of times it's multiple calls involved 
It may not even be calls, maybe looking through medical records, parsing out what cases are what and sort of differentiating the gold, if you will, the diamonds in the rough from the garbage. There's a lot of garbage out there. And I don't mean that necessarily in a, a derogatory way, but a lot of times people may call our office and I used to sort of take it personally. I used to be like, oh my gosh, why are all these people fucking idiots? <laughs> Thank you. Out there, are they just, you know, trying to annoy the shit out of me or are they just, I don't know. I was like, ah, why me? But the truth is that it just happens that with every single business, that's just part of the drill today. So we spend a lot of time doing triage on those cases so we can devote the time and the resources necessary to the real cases, to the legitimate cases, to the substantial cases where we're really going to make money. And that's a huge thing. And then I also spend time administrating with the people who work for me, handling the, when I have different writers working on different projects and researching different content ideas. That's a whole nother hat that I wear. And then probably the other hat that I wear is sort of developing these referral relationships, these business relationships I have with other attorneys. And that's something that a lot of times people don't you know, necessarily think about, but it's just like in any business where, you know, the relationships that I have and that you have with people that you work with are tremendously important. And it's important to me that the people who I refer cases to, they put a face with a name and they know that I'm not just slamming cases at them, that I actually am around. And that if they have a question or if there's a problem, good, bad, otherwise they can reach me because ultimately these business relationships are a lot like a marriage. You want these to be strong and long-term. And if you don't have that solid groundwork in place, problems can develop. Unfortunately, sometimes law firms dissolve, lawyers come go. So I want to have solid relationships with the people that I do business with. So my days are, they're all over the place sometimes, but for me, it suits me very well. When you say those strategic relationships, like how do you keep up with them? Is there a systematic way that you actually do that? It's also probably difficult to manage time to spend with other lawyers to make sure you manage those relationships because they're probably super busy too. They are. One of the things that I'll typically do is we have software that we track every single case, every single contact that comes in, we track. What software? We use a software, it's called Captura. It's an intake, legal intake software, which was developed by a personal injury law firm, I think in Florida, actually, I'm not sure. But what it does is basically it enables us to track every single contact that comes in. Every time that someone does a chat, a phone call, an email, it gets tracked. We input that contact into our system. If it's not a case, we can generate rejection letters. If it is a case, we can then import it to our another system that we use, case management system. But what that also does is that when I see we're sending cases out to a law firm who may be handling a particular type of case, we can then send follow-ups automatically to that law firm to track the case as it may progress for a number of years. I'll go out to visit other attorneys who I may refer business to. The past couple of years have been a little bit different for everyone. They've been particularly different for me because in the past, I would go every few weeks basically to visit with attorneys who I have ongoing business with and as well as to visit with attorneys who I may partner with in the future on different case types. So that's something that I really do enjoy doing and I've really found to be particularly effective. Originally, I was very hesitant to put aside two days to go visit with an attorney, maybe just have dinner with them and some of their staff members. Well, it seems like a lot of time. It's pain. Every time I get on a plane, it gets delayed. But at the end of the day, 
it's been tremendous and something that's been extremely worthwhile. And for anyone who's hesitant to sort of make that face-to-face meeting, I would encourage them to do it. A lot of times it's hard to justify the time away, the cost. Yeah, of course, everyone's got busy lives and everything, but to really go devote essentially a day or even a couple hours to a face-to-face meeting can really be tremendous in terms of the long-term prospect of your business development. So, I mean, I've gone out all over the country to meet with attorneys. Well, sometimes we'll talk about cases. A lot of times we'll talk about completely unrelated topics. We'll talk about fishing. We'll talk about their families. We'll talk about anything actually non-law related in some aspects. But at the end of the day, I can pick up the phone. I have that relationship. They know me. I know them. And it really has gone a long way towards building our business. So that's something that if anyone's you know on the fence about doing, I would really encourage them to do that. Right. But make sure it's strategic too, that you're not just, I guess you're not visiting random law firms. You're doing ones that you plan on referring business to that are doing like a class action lawsuit or something like that, that you're referring them to, right? Yeah. I'm not knocking. I'm not cold calling. These are people who I have either been introduced to, or I have maybe I've referred several cases to them and I want to grow that aspect of the business. And so they'll come into Chicago sometimes. And a lot of times I'll go Particularly if it's in the winter, I'm very eager to visit warmer locales. <laughs> right. Cause you're in Chicago again right now. So just so everyone understands, that makes perfect sense. Cause it gives you an excuse too. And I'm glad you've kind of brought this up or me even talking about this. Cause as entrepreneurs, we're always trying to be as efficient as we can. And it's hard to put a amount of efficiency on going to meet someone. Let's say if you flew down to Arizona, right? To meet a law firm or something like that. Is it worth it versus if I'm the SEO guy for this law firm and I can put out at least two articles today or something like that, it's easy to say that like I accomplished something, but it's hard to put like a check mark of accomplishment making and building those relationships. So it sounds like you've been good about doing that, at least in the past. And again, like you said, over the last two years, it's been a little bit more difficult maybe to do something like that. But for me, I think I would think like a lot of entrepreneurs where you're kind of like, at first you're like, I don't know if it's worth it, but I like to think of it every once in a while. It's just to break up your monotony because you're not going to be efficient hundred percent of the time all week long. Like even just getting out of the office, let's just say you're in the office for two hours and you go to meet somebody that probably would make you more efficient when you come back. I'm guaranteed during those two hours that you're having that lunch meeting, you weren't efficient all day. So I think that's a good thought process to bring up, like you're saying to Make sure you spend time building those relationships, even though it's kind of hard to justify an ROI in the beginning. A thousand percent. A lot of times people, they poo-poo the time and the effort and the expense that goes into a meeting. Frankly, there's some people who are just a lot better at doing that than other people. I guess one of the things that I've sort of learned is that these are all sort of skills. And ultimately, you improve with your skill set by doing these different tasks. And the way to really improve your relationship, your interpersonal relationship is to go out and meet people. And it's a different, it's not just meeting someone at a bar or something like that. It's sort of developing a, a rapport with them and sort of whether you bond over athletics or whether you bond over golf or whatever it is to sort of find that, I guess that meeting point, that common interest that you have is tremendously important it really can go a long way down the road. And ultimately, the people that I've met with sometimes 10 years ago, it's amazing to me how they'll remember, they'll bring up, hey, do you remember when we went to that Mexican restaurant or whatever in Phoenix? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, sure. But you really don't. Nah. <laughs> 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 
the best guacamole I've ever had. But no, it really does go a long way. And unless you actually do it, you're never going to sort of get out of your shell. So I found it very worthwhile. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I want a better gut health and an optimized immune system. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. So all the things. See, I consume my healthy scoop of Athletic Greens every single morning, so I get my day started off right. With Athletic Greens, you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him over $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutritional routine on your own. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Green is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash millionaire to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So this is the part where I'm getting paid to tell you about Real Vision. You may not listen to me, just like my wife, but you should take them up on their ridiculous $1 trial deal. Since Real Vision was launched in 2014 as an on-demand finance and education platform, they've been on a mission to help people just like you access the financial information that was largely kept behind closed doors. That's stuff that actually affects your wallet, your investments, and your future. But if you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're never going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, everything. That's why in 2020, Real Vision Crypto was launched, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital assets video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 200,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation. Five times a week, they bring you the most brilliant minds in finance and crypto, including Gary Vee, Catlin Long, Bill Tao, Mike Novogatz, and so many more. And guess what? Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, go visit realvision.com forward slash millionaire. Again, that's realvision.com forward slash millionaire. And it's just opportunities where you bring up something and you meet another business person, right? So it's just, a, it's a one other way to kind of do that. But going back to like when I was asking about your day-to-day -day and what you do. So most lawyers, it would seem like that maybe being a personal injury, are they just kind of working on cases all day versus it seems like yours is pretty split up between managing the law firm, building the relationships, and then kind of doing the website and the SEO and whatnot. I think, again, the last part that I mentioned, the website, the SEO and all that stuff, it seems like it's what other lawyers wouldn't be focusing on, but that's what you've done to build your business. Is that just to really summarize it again before we rewind it? Is that the case? 
I sort of find that jack of all trade, master of none. You can't do everything today. You got to sort of make some decisions where you want to put your effort, your energy, what you're good at, what you're not good at, frankly. A lot of times people, they go to law school and they say, hey, I want to practice law. Well, let me tell you something. You could be the best lawyer in the world, but if you don't have business, good luck. And that's really something that law schools do a really poor job of teaching people. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of very unhappy attorneys out there for a variety of reasons. I don't even want to get into some of them, but you know, people are generally overworked, they're stressed, but ultimately a lot of these people are very dependent on the law firm where they work for their livelihood. And I find that it doesn't matter if you're an attorney, a plumber, dentist, anything. If you have your own business and you can sort of support yourself, it just makes you feel better at the end of the day because you're not holding to a system which sort of sounds horrible, but they sort of make you a cog in the wheel. And if you're just a cog in the wheel, you could be a great cog, but you're never going to get that boost, that independence, autonomy that you would have if you have your own business. So I don't really know what other attorneys aspire to. There's attorneys out there who all they want to do is try cases. All they want to do is take depositions. God bless them. Okay. That's not something I want to do. I want to develop business. I want to develop, frankly, a life and a lifestyle which enables me to take care of myself and my family, hopefully well, and hopefully have everyone happy as opposed to sitting at a desk, running to court all day. Again, there's a lot of tremendous attorneys out there who are very happy doing that. That's just not something for me. Was that something that you used to have to do? I've done every single aspect of the law, good, bad, and otherwise, from making copies to taking depositions, to meeting with clients, to trying cases, to writing briefs, you name it, I have pretty much done it. Looking back on it, I was not enjoying that for the most part while I was doing it. And with a little bit more perspective, I think I was probably pretty miserable doing that. I remember going to... Well, real quick, before we jump into that story, because I just want to make sure I want to set it up and then we're going to rewind it now to how you kind of, I guess, came out of law school, because obviously you had to go to law school, I'd imagine, to be a lawyer. And then, yeah, you can tell us like how you saw those different aspects, I guess, and maybe you didn't like them and then how it transitioned you to making your own firm. Does that sound good? Sure. I went to college in Pennsylvania. I went to Lehigh University and I went there primarily because I was, I swam in high school and I was a pretty good swimmer and I probably was not qualified necessarily academically to get in there. The swimming really helped, which was great. And I started in the business school at Lehigh. And one of the first classes that they required you to take was a computer programming class. At the time, I had zero knowledge of computers. I didn't know how to turn a computer on, let alone program anything. And I basically failed out of the business school after the first semester. Then I transitioned to journalism because I didn't really have any other ideas. And then wound up graduating. My parents said, well, congratulations. That's a semi-worthless degree. So why don't you go to law school? And I said, okay. So I went to law school. I was obedient young man. And I really had no interest, not even an interest, but I really didn't even know what attorneys did or anything about the law. It just was something that had heard, gave you a good background for a variety of different businesses. And people I'd known who had gone to law school seemed, even if they weren't practicing law, they seemed to put a good amount of weight on it. So I followed that path. I went to law school in Chicago. I went to Chicago Kent College of Law. I frankly disliked the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. I really had no interest in many of most of the classes. Most of the classes in law school and at Kent in particular were very theoretical. 
I am not a theoretical thinker. I'm a rocks for jocks type of guy. I like concrete things that I can understand and apply and use, learn something today and apply it tomorrow. I don't like this theoretical approach to things. And it just really wasn't my cup of tea. But during law school, my parents, again, I wasn't doing very well. They said, uh, that's fantastic. You're in law school, but these B's and C's and whatever, those aren't actually going to get you a job. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Anyway, I wound up clerking at a law firm in Chicago. And clerking is essentially, you're not an attorney, you're in law school and a little bit of slave labor. You are not necessarily doing the most glamorous tasks around. A lot of times it's getting coffee for people. It's cleaning stuff up. It's making copies. It's running errands. Sometimes it's legal research, but it's essentially you are at their beck and call to do whatever and whenever. And frankly, I liked it. I wasn't one of those people where it was like, oh, I'm in law school. I, I'm not going to make copies for someone. I actually, I'd prefer to go make copies, frankly, and get coffee for people as opposed to to sit and research stuff for hours. I've really found that more enjoyable. And then I got to bring the coffee back and maybe sit down with an attorney for five or 10 or 15 minutes and talk to them and sort of pick their mind and sort of get some ideas as opposed to just sitting in the back of the office with the law books open. This is, goes back 20 plus years where there's still research done on books as opposed to computers. But while I was at my first law clerk job, there was a case that got resolved. It was, I remember it was a, a railroad accident case, a railroad worker got injured and he wound up having, a, I think it's leg amputated. This was 20 plus years ago, but the case wound up getting resolved for 15 plus million dollars. And I happened to be sitting probably, I don't know, taking out the garbage or something. And I overheard them talking about the fee distribution on it. And I heard them mention someone's name who I'd never heard of. And I said, well, who's John Smith? Why is he getting all this money from this case? I've never heard you know, his name mentioned before. I haven't seen him in the office. And they said, oh, that's the attorney who referred us this particular case. Right then I said, well, you're telling me all he did was he referred the case and he's getting this substantial check. And they said, yeah. I just made a mental note in my head. And from that day, it was just ingrained on me. I don't know what I want to do, but if I'm going to be in the field of law, I want to be generating business, whether I'm working on that case myself or referring that case out to other people, because that's really how you make money. And that's how you, you know, really turn your profession into sort of that entrepreneurial side gig. From that day forward, I'd worked at other jobs and I was always thinking about getting cases, getting business. And really from the time I graduated law school and passed the bar on paper, my skill set was not very really in demand. I was not having blue chip law firms knock down my door, throwing money at me. I started, you know, working at a personal injury job. I think I make $30,000 a year. I worked probably six days a week and I just got the shit kicked out of me essentially. But I realized, again, how important it was to start getting business. So every single time, it was probably obnoxious, but every time I would interact with someone, I would sort of let them know, hey, I'm a personal injury lawyer. Have you been hurt? When can you get me a case? I would go out to construction sites. I would rent the food trucks out there. I would give away my card. I would buy them food. I would do whatever it took to start getting my name out there and start getting business. And it's disheartening initially because nothing happens overnight. Sometimes I would go and do these projects or I don't know, whatever you want to call them. And I would spend this time and this money on this. And maybe I would get a few tire kickers or people calling me with crap cases. And I'd be like, that was a waste, but I don't know. I mean, either out of stupidity or stubbornness, I kept doing it. 
And eventually I started getting some cases. Someone, I would go to a construction site and I'd get maybe three horrific garbage calls. Maybe the fourth call would be a viable case. And then I would work on that case myself and I would start developing that business. And before I knew it, I started getting business from different avenues. Originally, it was all sort of word of mouth. It was all sort of face-to-face -face contact. And one day I just sort of woke up and I started seeing that people were getting business on the internet. I guess the first step that I had was at the time I had a case, it was a nursing home abuse case where a person developed bed sores in a nursing home. It actually was one of the most ideal setups in terms of a case because it happened at a very reputable nursing home and it actually involved a very nice family and had very good insurance and everything. But the case wound up getting, I think it wound up settling for six, $700,000. I said, wow, I said, I like these nursing home cases. I think I want to get a lot of them. And so the next day, you know, having looked at websites around, I decided to start a nursing home website, a nursing home blog, where I would start putting together content. Originally, this content was not particularly good content. This was back 20 years ago where you really didn't have to put together the best content out there as you do today. That really enabled me to start marketing for these particular types of cases. And I started, basically, I was working all day as a traditional lawyer and coming home and writing content for this nursing home blog. And after six months, a year of not really getting a whole lot out of it, eventually the phone started ringing, people started contacting me. And that was sort of the beginning of where things have sort of developed today. It was a long process, frankly. And again, this is something that didn't happen overnight. And I just kept sort of grinding it out because I didn't really have any other options, frankly. If you're desperate, you don't have a whole lot of options out there, but I just kept at it. And I probably you know, was teaching myself a little bit about these cases. And I started looking around and seeing what competitors were doing and what other people were doing in that space. And I started writing content that was basically either better than what they were producing or doing it with a higher velocity, which enabled me to start getting some cases. And so that was sort of the beginning of the process of getting cases online. And it's a long time ago, those 20 plus years ago, but that's sort of where I started. Right. So what year did you start doing the nursing home blog? Probably around 2001, 2002, maybe. Okay. So were you still working for a big law firm at that time? Yes, I was working for, it wasn't a big law firm. Traditionally, personal injury firms are fairly small in comparison to other firms. What happens is in the field of personal injury, once people start getting their book of business, if they're interested in doing that, they may leave the law firm. So most personal injury firms tend to be a lot smaller than your traditional defense firm or your corporate law firm, which may have 100 or 200 attorneys. So I think the law firm I was at had six, seven attorneys. And I started doing it. I said, do you care if I do this blog? They said, essentially, do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't cost us money or take too much of your time. So that's sort of what I was doing. Yes. Okay. And when did you graduate law school? Graduated 2000. You graduate and then you study for the bar, which is usually, I don't know, six months after. Yeah. So being a year or two out of law school, you had already, after you heard being a clerk of that referral business, you're like, okay, you're thinking about how to drum up business. And again, it was great that you told us about going to construction sites and trying this, all this other stuff. But just when, still when you're a young lawyer, you're like, hey, let me just try this side blog and see if I can drum up business that way. Yeah, pretty much. I really didn't have a game plan at that point. I was just trying to... Well, you try, you got to try different shit. That's the whole idea, right? So, I mean... The main thing is what differentiates you versus others is doing something versus just thinking about it. I like to think that. 
I'm always a big fan of trying new things, taking some risks. And if you don't try it, you're never going to win. Right. And what's the worst that's going to happen? You're just going to lose your time. It really wasn't that much that expensive, right? It's not like you're costing $10,000 for you to set this up and it's a third of your salary for the year. No. This was back in the good old days where you didn't have to do a lot of things that you do today. So even again, when you must be in your mid-20s at this point, right? When you're doing this? Yeah, this sounds about right. At what point did you leave that small law firm and start your own firm? Well, I actually worked at about three or four different small law firms, all within- Personal injury. Yeah, personal injury firms, all within a two or three year period where I would basically work at the law firm. I would develop some relationships with the attorneys at the law firm. I would learn everything I could about whatever they would let me do. If it was taking depositions, I would take the deposition. Even if I had never taken a deposition of- What's a deposition? A deposition is basically when you ask questions. You sit down in an office- And they record you on video. They record you on video or audio. You have a court reporter there. It's done under oath. And you ask either a party to a lawsuit or an expert questions orally. And it's written down by a court reporter today. Sometimes it's video, but there is a skill to that. And you have to, there's a real skill to that in particular with experts because they're smart people and it's difficult, but I would do that. I would try cases. I would go to court. You name it, I did it. But I jumped around for a lot of different jobs. Frankly, I never was the type of person who was the worker bee. I always was a little bit resentful. I didn't really have to be told what to do. I would do it, but I just felt like a lot of times people, my superiors always sort of took advantage of me and of the fact that they were able to tell me what to do. And how would you leave each law firm? Were you like, fuck you guys? Sort of. (laughs) (laughs) I have that feeling. If if you don't like being told what to do and they just keep doing it over and over and over. I mean, it makes sense. But versus a lot of other lawyers, they just kind of take it, huh? Looking back on it, maybe it's probably not. It's definitely not the same today as it was 20 plus years ago. Overall, society, I think, has gotten a lot more civilized over the past 20 years, the shit that used to go down when I was a young lawyer, it just, I don't think it would happen anymore because people, I think they're sort of scared of the fallout that would come from completely berating a young attorney to the point yelling at them at the office at 10 o'clock at night that it's just, I'm sure maybe it happens, but it just seems like it happens a lot less today than it used to. So yeah, I would basically be, I'm out of here most of the firms I was at, they sort of would roll their eyes and be like, good luck. And my parents were a little concerned, but I always sort of managed to find something. In addition to doing the blog, I wanted doing some yellow page advertising. I was just trying it. I was just trying different things. Whether it was out throwing my cart out and buying ham sandwiches for the construction workers or throwing my business cards out when I was a young 20-something-year-old intoxicated in the back of a taxi cab, I still had the wherewithal to you know, just keep moving forward, keep developing that business, and just keep trying to get a case. I didn't even care if it was a good case. I just wanted the phone to ring, for Christ's sake. And that's sort of my philosophy today. I think a lot of times people, as they rise up the food chain, they sort of lose track of sometimes where they came from. And sometimes they feel like they're too good for something or, well, that's not me anymore or whatever. But you know what? I don't care. I'll do anything. Whatever it takes is sort of- You'll even do a podcast interview. 
I will do a podcast. I'll do 10 podcasts if that's what I have to do. But no, I mean, that's just my mentality. And that's just something that stuck with me. I don't know, from an early age, because I always sort of realized, hey, I may not be the smartest guy around. But you know what? If I stick with it, I will grind out any single person in pretty much any activity. And that's just something that I've learned. I grew up swimming and I swam and I was not the most gifted swimmer physically, but I would gravitate towards the distance swimming events because those were the events, frankly, where if you were willing to put the work in and torture yourself, you would always be successful. And I guess that's probably a lesson that I learned early on in swimming that has really served me very well today. And so that's sort of something that I try to instill on my kids and everyone around me is, you know what, just keep going, keep moving. That's an excellent point. I mean, I think I've said in the past, or thought about it, swimmers and wrestlers in high school by far work the hardest. It's not even close. I think swimmers might even work harder, but even in high school, weren't you waking up early before school and after school swimming? Yes. So I get up very early now. I usually get up at 4.30, 4, 4.30 in the morning. When do you go to bed? As early as possible. In the Arctic Chicago winter, I want to get in bed at about six, but no, I usually get in bed like 8.39, watch a little TV and try to sleep through the night. Unfortunately, my old age, I don't sleep nearly as well as I used to due to orthopedic issues primarily. But yeah, swimming, I grew up swimming and it sort of teaches you that discipline to, you can't just go out and stay out all night and wake up the next day and expect to be productive and expect to compete. If you're dragging ass and if you're not well-rested and you're in high school and college, if you're out partying, it's just, it's not going to cut it. So that was something that, and my coaches, they were tough. And that's just something that was just ingrained on me over and over again. So it's funny. There's a guy who I work with now who's of counsel with my office and he wrestled at, at Northwestern. He wrestled and I met him and he told me he wrestled. And then we started talking in about two minutes and I wasn't looking to hire him, but I was looking, he was looking to work with me. And after about two minutes, I said, stop putting on the show. I'm sold. As soon as you told me that you wrestled in college, I have that mutual level of respect that you sort of need. And I, I knew he had that discipline and that drive to be successful. And that's someone that I've worked with for a number of years. And I could know I can email him essentially 24 hours a day and he's going to be on it, whether it's a new contact an issue with an existing case, I know at the end of the day, if I need to get a hold of them or something needs to get done, it will get done. There is no, oh gosh, I hope he does it. Where I sort of have that with some other people. Unfortunately. It's yeah, true. like 99% of the, 99.9% .9 of people, I'm like, <laughs> did you do that? And you hope and you don't know. <laughs> but, but when you have that background in sports, Again, they may not, these people may not be, have gotten the, they may not have been on law review or whatever, but I know that they're going to wake up and ring that bell. And I'm a big believer showing up is, well, I don't know, percentage wise, whether it's 60, 80, 90%, but it's a very substantial percentage. A lot of people just don't show up and they don't put themselves in the position to win. And that's something that I'm just a big believer in. So I guess at least one thing we can pull from this interview is make sure our kids sign up for wrestling or swimming at some point. Beat it into them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not just sign up. You're going to do this. And I'm glad I brought wrestling up because, yeah, that, that's a pure example. Again, it's just like how dedicated you have to be to get to where you are. And like you said, the long distance events, it's not nearly as much about skill as it wants. So at what point did you actually start your own firm? We talked about you jumping around. 
you not being told what to do. We know you started a blog and at least started getting business at that point, but what was like the official time that you started Rosenfeld Injury? So I started Rosenfeld Injury in 2010, and that actually came about, I had actually had a partner that I met while I was working at one of the earlier personal injury firms, who was a guy who actually semi-professional tennis, again, another athlete who I sort of bonded with because of the work ethic and the drive. Typically, I find people who play sports in college tend to work hard and play hard, which I enjoy. And it was great. We were sort of kindred spirits in a certain respect. Unfortunately, we worked together for a number of years. And unfortunately, we sort of just grew apart. He frankly just got a little lazy and I was motivated to grow and to accomplish things. And I'm the kind of person where I don't mind doing 55, 60% of the work, but I'm not going to do 80% of the work and split the proceeds. So I sort of left that. And at the time I left, it was a tumultuous departure to say the least. I sort of basically wind up just saying, you know what, take it, take everything. I'm out. I just don't even care. I just want to be out of here. I want to, I don't want the headache. I don't want to be tied down to anything. So I left and people thought I was nuts, but at the end of the day, I just had to do it because I knew that I just didn't want to be tethered to someone who wasn't as dedicated as I was to the business and it was tough. So that was 2010. And then 2010, I basically started from ground zero. I think I had, I still had the nursing home website going, but I essentially had no cases when I left and I got busy. I started writing content. I transitioned from nursing home blog writing to law firm website content. And it's sort of just grown from there. Everything has always been a progression. Everything has been sort of a process. While if I looked it back at some of the content that I wrote in 2010, I would probably throw up with how poorly it was written and how superficial it was. But you know what? That's just part of the evolution of life and of the business and everything. And from there, it's just kept growing. So I've always hired lawyers. I've hired people to help me develop content, develop ideas and everything. Most of these people, frankly, were pretty average. But right now I sort of have a core group of writers who I've been working with for a number of years who may have started as fairly average writers, but I've sort of whipped them into shape a little bit. We've really sort of have a little bit of a formula together now where they know what I want, what my expectations are. They know how to structure content, what I'm looking for. And it's really enabled us to grow because you can't do it yourself. As much as I'd like to do everything myself and I tend to micromanage some things, probably I definitely less now than I used to, but you have to hand the reins off to people. And that's something that I've sort of trained these people to do. They know what my expectations are. I may sound micromanager hard ass, but the truth is I'm pretty easy to work with. If you do your job, I don't care. Do whatever you want. You want to go daydream in the sun? I don't care. As long as you get your work done, I don't care. As long as you pick up the phone when I need you, that's fine. If you want to stay up till three o'clock in the morning, God bless you. But that's just how these people work. And then we've sort of got that understanding at this point. Many of you have probably heard about how the market for collectibles, including NFTs, have gone crazy over the last year. The problem though, is that even if you wanted to invest in some of these assets, the price tags are simply out of reach for most investors like myself. Well, don't worry, because Otis is here to the rescue. Our podcast is sponsored by Otis, and Otis is an investment platform that makes it possible for almost anyone to invest in shares of cultural assets. Here's how it works. You download their app and sign up for free. They have over 100 items available for you to invest in, from rare collectibles like sports cards, comics, and video games, to NFTs, contemporary art, and even rare sneakers. 
shares usually start around 10 bucks. Plus, they add new assets every week. You can then earn a potential return if Otis sells the underlying asset for more than the price that the item was dropped at, or by selling your shares to other Otis members on Otis's real-time trading platform. Two of the assets I regularly check are the sneakers and NFTs section. If you know me, I like to stay up to date on business culture, and this app lets me check in on the price of those hip investments so I can relate to those younger hip entrepreneurs. Right now, Otis is offering listeners of this show a free share when they fund their account. All you have to do is go to withotis.com forward slash millionaire and sign up to get your free share. That's W-I-T-H-O-T-I-S dot com forward slash millionaire. Again, that's withotis.com forward slash millionaire. For more on risk and disclaimers, go to withotis.com forward slash legal forward slash disclaimer. Energetic Austin here, and these days, it can be hard to find and hire the right candidates for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. And from my personal experience, you can't find a qualified candidate faster than you can on LinkedIn Jobs. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. Focus on candidates with just the right skills and experience and use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash millionaire. That's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And so I guess growing it over the last 10 or 11 years, your own firm here, what's been the hardest part? Probably finding people to work with me, both in on the content development side of things, as well as the actual business side of things. When I say the business side of things, I mean the people, the lawyers that I work with now and refer business to now, these are stud lawyers. Not only are they stud lawyers who really do get tremendous results for the client, which is extremely important because I don't want a bad reputation. In these cases, it's a mutual representation. My name is on the contract. My name is on that. And they know, the clients know that if something goes south, they know that we're both sort of on the hook. So I don't want to be professionally, I don't want to be dragged through the mud when having an upset client. But unfortunately, to get to that point, I have drilled a lot of wells that have been dry. I've worked with attorneys who may have a reputation of being a tremendous attorney, but they're complete sleazebags when it comes to the business side of things. And they may try to stiff you on a fee or they may be horrific with clients. One of the things that pisses clients off the most and that gets the most complaints with the Attorney Regulatory Commission in Illinois and really across the country is when attorneys don't call clients back. A lot of times attorneys are very eager to pick up the phone and return a phone call for a new case. But if it's an existing case and someone's calling at the end of the day and they've had a long day, they may wait. That's one thing that will piss clients off. 
And so I've learned, frankly, you live and learn. I've learned who these people are and I can bitch and moan and I can say, oh, you didn't uphold your part of our, because we have a uh, contract, written contracts in all of these cases. No way. The lawyers have written contracts in these cases. <laughs> well, you actually, you'd be surprised because <laughs> in some states, no, in some states, you don't actually have to refer a case and get a referral fee. You don't have to have a written contract. In Illinois, you have to have a written contract and in every state or every referral relationship that we have. We don't really do anything loosey-goosey anymore. Everything's written out. But even when things are written out, lawyers have a way of, especially when you're talking about potentially a large fee involved, it's amazing how when there's dollars and cents involved, the most altruistic attorneys who may have the best reputations out there turn into complete sleazebags when it comes to paying out that referral fee. So I guess at the end of the day, the most difficult thing in the past, as well as today, is sort of the management of people in terms of I work with and managing clients. A lot of times clients today are extremely demanding. They expect to return their phone calls, to return their emails essentially instantaneously. And it's easy to push something back. I've got too much on my plate right now. I'll do it. If someone emails me now, I'll do it after work or something tonight, but that's not what people want. People have really, in today's day and age, they expect service and they expect to be, doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your education is. They expect to be treated well. And I think that's one of the things that we've done is if someone calls you back or emails you or calls you or whatever, pick up that phone and return that call. Because if you don't, not only is it going to piss them off, they're going to leave. And ultimately, we are a service business. And if we're not providing really top quality service, we got nothing. And so that's something that I really instill upon everyone. So business-wise, practice-wise, management to people is always difficult. I guess, personally, we haven't really talked about that. You said you had some children and a wife? I do. I've been married. Okay, you're putting me on the spot here. No, I'm joking. I have two wonderful children. My son is 15 and my daughter is 10 going on 20 and been married for, again, put me on the spot here, right around 20 years. Don't ask me what my anniversary is, although sometime in September. And all things being equal, like everything, we have our good days, our bad days, and everything in between, but I like to think most of them are pretty good. Oh, I heard this joke. I went to a comedy show the other day that this guy got married on his birthday, and the comedian was basically just saying, oh, she did that so she could ruin your birthday too, so... <laughs> At least he knows when it is, though. I don't know. I just know it's sometime in September. Well, I guess, like, personally for you, even being a lawyer and seeing how much you're working, what's been the hardest part of balancing that? Like, you're building a business. Obviously, you're spending a lot of time doing that. How have you been able to balance that? I mean, obviously, like you said, everyone has good and bad days, but how have you gotten through the hardest part? And what's been the hardest part of that? Well, I guess, to, again, the past couple of years with COVID and people working remotely and everything else, I think a lot of the lines, you know, have become blurred between work, family, personal life, everything else. And for better or worse, I don't have no partitions. If I always try to put a priority on family after business hours, but the truth is that if I get an email, I get a call, if I have a project going on, I got to do it. So I work a lot probably more than I realize because I may go out during the day and do a bike ride or do something, walk my dogs for a while, but it's just a constant motion. So my family's just become accepting of it and very lucky. My wife, she's really the big boss here. She manages the cases. 
We have thousands of cases. She manages all of them. She follows up with lawyers that we refer the cases to. She sort of helps reconcile the accounting when checks come in and everything. So it's sort of a, a little bit of a family business, a little bit of a shoe store, little cobbler mentality here. And that's sort of actually been great because she knows what I'm doing and I sort of know what she's doing. And at the end of the day, you know what? She could, but she's not hopefully not going to screw me and vice versa. We're sort of a team. And from that aspect, it's been great because in the past, I've had different people sort of tend to some of the things that she handles. And frankly, there was always problems. There was always mistakes. And when she's involved, she really cracks that whip. So we've sort of, is it the traditional family from the 1950s or 60s where dad comes home and spends time with his kids and is everything sort of segmented out? No, it's very much a blurred line situation. But you know, I've just found that this is something that works for me and that hopefully works for my family because I do have flexibility that also comes along with it. We can, if we want to do something during the week, if we want to take a trip, we don't have to necessarily for a specific time, we can do it. I may have to move appointments around or I may have to juggle some things, but it's given us a tremendous amount of flexibility, which I think certainly outweighs any type of problems that may accompany the sort of the 24 seven work life. Well, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I think even if you weren't, people weren't lawyers that just thought it'd be interesting to kind of have you on, have a different aspect, having someone who has a different type of background. So I guess looking back for any of our listeners, do you have any words of wisdom or advice for them? I think probably the biggest thing that I've learned is to just keep moving forward, keep grinding, keep hammering. It sounds real cliche. It sounds sort of a little rough, I guess. But the truth is every business is rough. Life is rough. And you know what? The sooner you come to accept that and just deal with it, the better you're going to be and the better you're going to be able to tackle your competitors and win. I guess like part of it too, I mean, did you ever want to give up after, let's say when you're visiting construction sites and you're not getting any feedback from other people or if it took so long, like maybe six months for finally your blog to start working? Was there any points where you like even gave up for a day or you're like, hey, this isn't worth it? Of course. I think it's natural to have some misgivings about anything that's not working as you want to. But the truth is that the people who I see who are long before, I wish I had this perspective 20 years ago, but every single successful person has had setbacks and has had problems. And every single person has problems. It's just how you deal with the problems and how you put those problems into perspective. A lot of times people look at someone who's successful and they say, well, yeah, it's easy for him or for her because they're gifted. It's easy for them. The truth is, honestly, I haven't seen anyone who's that gifted. Everyone has problems. It's just a matter of putting those into context and sort of just keep on moving forward. So I wish it were that easy, but the truth is, I don't care who you are. If you don't have problems today, you're going to have problems in the future. Business is how you deal with those problems and how you overcome them. I think that's the main thing is you just get up and keep trying. And it's all right, like even hearing your story, I mean, you can have an off week where you're just like, fuck, this isn't working. And maybe you have a month where you're just like, you're not working as hard because you're just like, whatever's working is not working. But eventually getting back and trying something else or getting back on it. I think sometimes people will hear certain stories that it's just, okay, they had a setback and the very next day, they're still gun-ho and happy and ready to go again versus, hey, you know, that sucked. Like you can be somewhat like depressed for a little bit, but the sooner you get back on it and get back to grinding, like you were saying and working, then that's the only way that things are going to get better. It's not going to just be there and sopping around and just hoping things get better. You got to create your own luck. And 
I wish I could buy a little statue or something and have it do the work for me. But the truth is that, you know what, you get out what you put into everything. And the sooner that you come to that realization that the person who you may idolize on a business aspect or even a personal aspect, they're putting a lot of work into it. And the sooner that you realize that and that you may have to put in more work than them. Is it fair? No, but you know what? Life's not fair. So you know what? Just get after it and do what you can and keep moving forward. Well, thanks, Jonathan, for coming on. If someone wanted to reach out and say, thanks for doing the interview, or I guess if they had any personal injury stuff in the Chicago area, or I guess nationwide, it doesn't really matter. Nationwide, baby, nationwide. What's the best way to reach you? Probably the best way is to go to our website, RosenfeldInjuryLawyers.com. There's every way of contacting us there. We're also all over YouTube, every social media platform. But you know what? If anyone has any questions, reach out. I do look at emails and I really do hope that this gives some people a little bit of an edge and a little bit of an inspiration and in that you may not start at the top, but if you keep working, you will get moving in the right direction. No, absolutely. So thank you for coming on and sharing your story of hard work. It's not easy. And obviously it takes time like you even talked about. So thanks again, Jonathan. Thank you. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes where we talk about how to service your customer. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Not to be confused with Two Girls in a Cup. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And if we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now. And if you have any questions about the membership, feel free to message me on Pornhub. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I-6-9. And as long as you're a Patreon member, I promise to respond to all your messages instantly. So become a member today.